Let's go to the Lord in prayer. There is indeed nothing that can make us white as snow except for the blood of the Lord Jesus. And so for those who are apart from Christ, that is scary news. But for those of us who are in Christ, that is the best news ever, that we have been washed white and we can come into your presence. Oh Lord, would you speak to us? Your servants desire to hear your voice. We desire to hear you speak as your word is read and preached. Help us, we pray, to drown out all other voices. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Would you take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the second to last book of the Bible, to the book of Jude? And I have to be very honest, I have not been so excited to preach a passage as I am this one. It it has been such a joy in my own walk with Christ to study, to read this passage. I didn't preach last Sunday. We were traveling, and so I've had two weeks for this one to marinate in me, and it has been a tremendous joy, and I hope that it will be such a joy for you as well. We've been studying as a church, verse by verse through the book of Jude. This is our fourth sermon, and the purpose of this passage from Jude is to help us understand and recognize the danger of false teachers. And by false teachers, we mean anybody who preaches anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen now to the reading of God's word, Jude, verses 8 through 16. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. When I was young, I played on various sports teams, soccer and baseball and tennis and golf, and I can remember every coach I ever had would say to me, keep your eye on the ball. And and I always found that so aggravating. Well, what else am I going to look at? 
Well, years later, I was coaching a group of four-year-olds playing soccer, and, and as they're playing, a flock of geese flew overhead, and every kid stopped playing except for one on the other team who scored a goal against us. And now I get why we have to say over and over and over again, keep your eye on the ball. Here in this passage, there are a number of things that could distract us. So we really need to keep our eye on the ball. There's this conversation about Michael and the archangel, and I'm going to try to explain that. Uh, Michael the archangel arguing with Satan about the body of Moses. There's this quotation by Enoch. There's references to Cain and Balaam and Korah. And any of those things could become a distraction, a rabbit trail that takes us away from the main point of this passage. You know, those illustrations, all they're supposed to do is shine light or to illustrate. But if they distract us from the main point, then, then we've missed the point. And so we need to keep our eye on the ball. I can tell you with great certainty, we're not going to answer every single question about this passage. You're not going to know everything about this passage when we're done, but you're going to know everything you need to know. As Alistair Begg often says, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. And the main thing today that we find in this passage is that Jude wants these dear believers to whom he's writing and to you to have the discernment to recognize false teachers and the courage to reject them so that the church could continue to contend for the faith. If you've been tracking over the last few weeks, that's the theme of this book, contend for the faith. That, that, that word for contend, it's, it's really the word agonize, exert the, every fiber of your being for the faith that's presented to us in Scripture. Now, one of the things, I don't know if you've noticed this in Jude, is Jude loves sets of three. He loves triplets. So two sermons ago, we saw that we are called and beloved and kept. Last time, in verses 5 to 7, he used illustrations about the Israelites, the angels, and Sodom. Well, why am I telling you that? Well, we can tell that these three-point sermons tell us for sure Jude is a Presbyterian pastor. And so if three is good enough for the Trinity and it is good enough for Jude, it's good enough for us today. And our three points are this. Our three points are first, how to recognize false teachers. Second, how false teachers endanger the church. And then the third thing I want you to see is the Lord will get the last word no matter what the false teachers may say. The Lord will get the last word. So let's work through those. First, Jude wants us to be able to recognize false teachers. And I've said this every week. It would be so nice if we had jerseys, team jerseys, so that those who belong to Team Jesus versus those who are the false teachers, you could just look at them and say, oh, he's got a false teacher jersey on. Oh, he's on Team Jesus. But it doesn't work that way. In, in fact, what makes false teachers so dangerous is that they're camouflaged. That, that's why Jude could say back in verse 4 that they have crept in unnoticed. They're not wearing team jerseys. They have slipped into the church and they have been teaching things both in their doctrine and in their lifestyle that have corrupted, that have hurt the church. They don't have forked tongues and, and little horns and a pitchfork saying, I'm on Team Satan. That's certainly not how it works. And so Jude wants to tell us, hey, it's not easy, but there are a few things you can look for to recognize false teachers. The first is you can recognize them by their 
incorrect teachings. We see that in verse 8 when it says relying on their dreams. See, these were people who rather than relying on the word of God, the scriptures, the faith that was once delivered to the saints in the Bible, they say that God is speaking to them through dreams and visions and voices. And they're using that to contradict scripture. And they're using these dreams to justify ungodly lives. We we were already told one of the things of which they're guilty is sexual immorality. And it seems to be they're saying things like, well, in a dream, God told me that this was okay. Now, don't be confused. In the Old Testament, before the fullness of the scriptures were written, God did speak through dreams and visions. We see that often in the Old Testament. But now that the fullness of the scriptures are here, now that Jesus has come, we have everything we need in the scriptures. We don't need visions and dreams. Look with me at Hebrews for a moment. Hebrews chapter 1 illustrates this, that that the former ways of of God revealing himself have now ceased. Look at this, Hebrews 1 verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The prophets often spoke through dreams and visions. But in this, these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. In other words, we do not need dreams and visions because we have the final word, the scriptures. God has revealed uh, himself to us and has given us everything we need for life and godliness in his word. Well, even though we have the fullness of scripture, that idea of people saying that they had a dream or they had a vision and God told them such and such, that did not end in Jude's day. You still see it today. So oftentimes you'll hear somebody say something like, God said it was okay for me to do this. Or even more common, God said, you see this with your televangelists, God told me that he will bless you if you send me money. The danger is once you start going down the road of saying God told me and you're talking apart from the pages of scripture, you can justify absolutely anything. And no one can tell you that you're wrong, even using the Bible, because you simply say to them, no, I know what God told me. It's a subjective, feelings-driven form of spirituality that is ungodly. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Have you ever noticed that when people say, God told me, that what they believe God told them often lines up with the desires of their own heart? I have never heard somebody say, Alex, I think God told me to donate all my money to the church. But I have heard people say, I believe God wants me to do such and such, and I look at them and I say, it is amazing how much God looks like you in that idea. See, the problem with saying God told me is that what God told you tends to look a whole lot more like the desires of your heart than the teaching of God's Word. Let me illustrate that because you might think, boy, he's being harsh this morning. Well, look at Jeremiah 23 for a moment. If you're using the Bible in your row, Jeremiah can be hard to find. Look at page 561 of that Bible. 
I want you to hear God's thoughts on prophets who prophesy according to the desires of their own hearts. Jeremiah 23, starting at verse 25. God says, I've heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I've dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart? Jeremiah, the Lord is saying through Jeremiah 600 plus years before Jude was writing, people are going to come along and they're going to say, I have dreams. Here's what God told me in a dream but it's really just the desires of their own heart. You can recognize false teachers by false, unbiblical teachings that undermine the reliability of the Word of God. See, if if we think that we need some new word from heaven, what we're actually saying is the Bible is not enough. We denigrate the Scriptures when we look to dreams and visions and voices. You don't need dreams and visions and voices because you have books and chapters and verses. You don't need to know the mind of God because you have the Word of God. And our own inward sense of right and wrong is too unstable and deceitful to be our compass. We do not rely on dreams and visions and and voices because we have the scriptures. So you can see a false teacher by their incorrect teaching that even though they might say, God told me, if it undermines the Bible, it is deceitful. There's a second way you can recognize false teachers. He says they're insubordinate to authority. Look at, look at verse 8. They reject authority. they There's been speculation through the years. Commentators disagree on exactly what kind of authority they reject. But I think if you were to look back at verse 4, it tells us, it talks about how these false teachers, by their ungodly lives, deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's not saying that they stand up at church and say, I don't believe in Jesus. But what it is saying is that by their lives, they reject Jesus as their ultimate authority. They won't have him be God over them. And it might be through these supposed dreams and visions that they have, whatever it is, they're ignoring what God has plainly revealed in his word. Do you you understand that, beloved? That what God has revealed to us about right and wrong will never, ever, ever be contradicted by anything in our culture. So no matter what the voices in our heads or the voices on TV tell us, right and wrong, morality does not change. The only way you can make right and wrong change is to, is to rebel against the authority of the lawgiver. And, and that's what they're doing here. They're, they're rejecting authority. You know, I, I think this may help us to understand that kind of strange line At the end of verse 8, it says they blaspheme the glorious ones. There's been a lot of debate through the years over what that means. I think it means this, and I may be wrong. The glorious ones are angels. This was another name for angels. There was Jewish tradition that actually came to, uh, uh, was proven true in Scripture. There was Jewish tradition that the angels delivered the law to Moses. 
And, and that was tradition for a long time. But in Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, he actually says that's what happened. Paul in Galatians 3 makes the same point, that the angels delivered the law. And so I think what Jude is saying here when he says they blaspheme the holy ones, he's saying the angels who delivered the law from God, they are blasphemed by the ways these people live. These people live in utter rebellion against God's law. You know, I'm convinced of this, and you've seen this in your own life too. The main reason people will accept all sorts of absurd New Age spirituality and absurd, ridiculous ideas about life and existence and all of that stuff is simply because they do not want to submit to the authority of God and His Word. And that's exactly what they're doing here. And so they've got this low regard of Scripture that comes out through incorrect teaching. They've got this rebellion against the authority of God, and it leads to a third way to recognize false teachers. This is really one of the chief ways. It's by ungodly lives. Look down at verse 15, and I want you to see if there's a key word that stands out to you. Verse 15, he picks up there uh, this warning that God is going to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You know, when a New Testament author uses the same word four times in one verse, he's about to hit you over the head with that word. It's the word ungodly. And so Jude is saying here, you know, look at their lives. If their lives are not bearing the fruit of the Spirit, you shouldn't have anything to do with them. They are not teachers called by God. If they're living an ungodly life, it doesn't matter how charismatic they are. It doesn't matter how well they articulate what they believe. Do not follow them. Do you get that today? In our culture, we are so concerned, even in the church culture, we're so concerned about things like gifting and charisma in our leaders that we ignore the chief characteristic of a leader in in biblical terms. The chief characteristic should be character. But we're willing to overlook all of that if a man is charismatic, if he's dynamic. We don't worry about his character. That's why we see again and again and again celebrity pastors who fall into great sin because we care more about a dynamic preacher than a godly life. Well, Jude says, no, no, no. You don't worry about it if he's charismatic. You don't worry about if he's dynamic. What you need to be concerned about is, is he a godly man? And if he's not a godly man, then he's a false teacher. The Apostle Paul put some flesh on those bones. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 3 for a moment. Second Timothy 3, Paul's telling Timothy, hey, I want you to be prepared. This is what life is going to be like for you. And it was this way for Timothy, it's this way for us today. He says, starting uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 2, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, uh, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And what does Paul say to Timothy? 
avoid such people. Now, they, they have the appearance, they, they're charismatic, they're dynamic, but there is no godliness. And Paul says, what you're supposed to do is run a thousand miles away in the opposite direction. Avoid such people. Let's stop for a minute, because when we think about this, when we really look at this under the microscope, we realize it's not so much an us-them thing. We like to make our, our, we like the paradigm of life that says we're the good guys, everybody else is the bad guy. But you know, at times we can be incorrect. At times we can be insubordinate. At times we can act in an ungodly way. So what does that say about you and me? Well, Jude isn't speaking here so much about perfection as direction. He knows we're all works in progress, and as much as we have to be on guard for the enemy out there, we also have to be on guard against the enemy right here. And for the Christian, when we see ourselves drifting in the direction of ungodliness, Rather than enable it and empower it as false teachers do, we must mortify it. We must kill it. This also means we need to be very charitable with one another in the church. Not everyone who makes a mistake in the life of the church is a heretic. Not everyone who fails and falls and sins, even sins greatly, is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Our desire ought to be to be patient with one another, that we may all present one another mature in Christ. But we must also learn to recognize false teachers through their incorrect, insubordinate, ungodly lifestyles. Now, once we've done that, Jude then wants us to understand the second thing, which is the danger that they pose to the church. Churches cannot tolerate false teaching and simultaneously remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke often about how a little bit of leaven leavens a whole lump. A little bit of ungodliness affects the whole batch, doesn't it? It affects the whole flock. We, we say it sometimes this way, one bad apple spoils the bunch. If the church tolerates false teaching rather than contending for the faith, many in the flock will be pulled away. That's what Jude wants us to understand. And he illustrates the point here that the whole church is at risk if you allow false teachers to continue on in what they're doing. Look look at verse 12. He says, it's, it's strange language, they are hidden reefs at your love feasts. Now, love feasts were, were Christian gatherings in the first century. It, it may have been a meal that they enjoyed together on, on Lord's Supper Sundays. It may be what we would call a potluck uh, meal today. We're not really sure what it was, but what's happening is these false teachers have become so integrated into the church that they're, they're coming to these things. They're, they're going to the, the love feasts and all of that. And, and, you know, they may be really likable people, actually. They they may be well-loved within the church. Paul told Timothy, false teachers actually are really good at gaining a following because they tell people exactly what they want to hear. They can be very fun to listen to and very appealing to the flesh. 
And Jude says they are hidden reefs. Only other place that's used, uh, nowhere else in the New Testament, the only other place we find it is in uh, Homer's Odyssey, speaking of a rock or a reef that was just beneath the surface. And everything looks safe, everything looks well, and then a ship comes upon it and gets shipwrecked. I think that's exactly what Jude has in mind. People who infiltrate and influence the church, they do it by creeping in, and in the process, they shipwreck the faith of many. And so Jude's saying, you need to be on the lookout. And those of you who ever go out in the boat here in Beaufort, you know there's areas where you have to go very slow because there's oyster rakes and there's sandbars. And if you're not careful, you can not only hurt your boat, you can hurt yourself. Jude's saying, you need to be aware of those things. You need to be aware of these hidden reefs. You know, they happen in the church. Anytime people gather together to to discuss a form of Christianity that is ungodly or to promote a type of lifestyle that is ungodly, those are hidden reefs. This is true in the home. Parents, we must be very watchful about hidden reefs in the lives of our children. What did they learn in the classroom? Do you ask your children, what did you learn at school today? You know, there are schools in our community that are aggressively teaching young children things like critical race theory. Critical race theory is an absolute attack upon the gospel. And and parents pay no attention to it oftentimes. And it's being taught in the classroom. And it's being brought home. And parents aren't asking questions like, what did you learn in school today? They're not asking about who your friends are, are spending time with. They're not asking about the things that children are watching on TV. I don't know if you realize this, but even cartoons for young children are an attack upon all that is good and right in this world. And and, and that's going to sound extreme. I want you to find one cartoon where the dad is not a bumbling idiot. Find one cartoon where the dad actually is just like a good guy who leads his family well. You can't tell me that's not on purpose. It teaches children to dishonor the leadership of their family, to distrust their own parents. We need to be careful, parents, church, about these hidden reefs that are just beneath the surface. We need to be watchful about these things because they will have consequences. And Jude wants us to understand We need to be watching, but God is watching as well. That's why he uses these three Old Testament references here, one about Cain, one about Balaam, and one about Korah. And commentators don't entirely agree with why Jude picks these three exactly, but I think the context makes it somewhat clear. All of these acted wickedly, and their wickedness affected others as well. It didn't just affect them but it affected others as well. Cain, of course, his sin against Abel, it affected Abel, but if you read Cain's genealogy in Genesis 3, they were an increasingly wicked people, so much so that the Jews called Cain a teacher of wickedness. And Jude is showing here, when we allow false teaching to persist in the life of the church and in the life of our home, We're training others in ungodliness. And then he talks about Balaam. Now, Revelation 2.14 tells us exactly what the situation with Balaam was. He says, but I 
have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. What, what's it saying there? All you need to know is that Balaam, like false teachers always do, led the people of God into sin and idolatry. And then Korah, he led a rebellion in number 16 against Moses and Aaron. And he created division and dissension in Israel. And if you've read the scriptures, particularly the book of Proverbs, you know that dissension is something God hates. And so Korah and all who followed him were destroyed as a result of it. See, the warning is clear. These false teachers always have effects on others. You can't let them exist and then think that everything's going to be okay. And they must be dealt with fully, firmly, and faithfully, or else they will cause the faith of many to be shipwrecked. Of course, this requires action and discernment on the part of the elders of the church, the watchmen of the church, but it requires wisdom on your part too. Every member needs to be a discerning theological mind so that you can tell the difference between right and wrong. How do you do that? Well, you know the word, you read the word, you you listen to the word preached, you pray the word, you live the word. That's why false teachers want to deprive the church of the word of God. They know that the word, the better trained the people are in the scriptures, the more it will expose their false teaching. You just, all you got to think back to, I got two perfect examples. One is the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church, who had so much unbiblical teaching and so much unbiblical activity, but the way they got away with it was the people were forbid from reading the scriptures. And then today, 21st century modernism or postmodernism tells people that the scriptures no longer apply. And so they say, oh, you you believe the Bible is actually applicable today? No, no, no. The Bible is old and out of date. In any case, false teachers always want to draw people away from the word of God, depriving people of its truth. Jude uses a litany of pictures here to illustrate that. First, in verse 12, he says, they're shepherds feeding themselves. You can imagine the scene of shepherds spending all their time and energy procuring meals for themselves, sometimes perhaps feasting upon the sheep, rather than feeding the sheep as they've been called to do. Jesus would call them hirelings. They're people who flee at the first sign of danger because they're only looking out for themselves. Today, we see this in preachers and church leaders who compromise with the world rather than risk being persecuted by it. And then he calls them waterless clouds. You can imagine being a traveler in Palestine in the first century. You see a rain cloud overhead and it feels like you're finally going to get some relief from the oppressive heat around you and then it's empty the cloud just dissolves into nowhere not a drop of rain and Jude's saying these people come hungry the flock comes hungry and thirsty for the living waters of Jesus Christ and yet these are empty waterless rain clouds they have nothing to satisfy them Jude says they're fruitless trees in autumn 
Pastor Walton and other men from the church are teaching a class now, Sunday school class, on the fruit of the Spirit. I commend this class to you. It's Galatians 5. tells us, here's evidence. Here's the outward evidence of the inward presence of the Holy Spirit within you. Every believer ought to be bearing fruit, and fruit ought to be especially evident. Fruit like Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the things Paul outlines and that that class is going to be studying. Every Christian ought to be bearing fruit, but especially church leaders, especially the leaders of the church. Let me press something home to you just a little bit. We live in an age where we can stream our favorite online preachers. And there are some wonderful ones that I listen to with great regularity. But those should never be the biggest spiritual influences in our lives. Why? Because what you're hearing online, and and I say this for those who may be streaming our service, what you can see, what you can hear, are things like charisma and intellect and gifting. And all of those things are good and necessary for preachers. But what you can't see through an hour-long service over the internet is the fruit of the Spirit. You need to surround yourself with believers, and especially church leaders, who bear the fruit of the Spirit in a way that is visible to you. The same is true for churches that are too big to know the leadership. In those cases where you, you, the leaders are in a sense off limits to the average person, you cannot look at their lives and say, do they bear fruit? And Jude says, fruitlessness is a mark of a false teacher. And then he goes on. He says they're wandering stars. First century folks didn't have Apple Maps. Most of them didn't have any maps at all. And so one of the most faithful guides of navigation was the stars. If you can identify some fixed star that's there night after night, it can guide you. That's what faithful teachers and preachers are. They're they're teaching from absolute truth of Scripture. They're guides which point to the light of the glory of Christ. But wandering stars are, are unable to guide us to the glory of Christ or to obedience to Him. They're always shifting according to the winds of the culture and their own appetite for gain. You know, this is why Jude says in verse 10 that they are like unreasoning animals. Look look at verse 10. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand. In other words, They have no sense of spiritual realities. It makes no sense to them. And so they blaspheme. They scorn against them. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. In other words, they're guided by the flesh, but they're unspiritual. They have no sense of things that are spiritually discerned. We're going to look at this next week, but Paul says it, I mean, Jude says it explicitly explicitly in verse 19. They're devoid of, of the Spirit. What he's saying here is for all their gifts, for all their charisma, whatever show they may put on in their teaching and their preaching, if they are devoid of the Spirit, 
It's blasphemous. And spiritual truths seem like utter foolishness to them. Do you see how dangerous this is to the church? God has ordained the church to be a gathering place of his people who are weary and hungry and thirsty for what he alone can provide them. And through the ministry of the word, he equips them and sends them out to a lost and dying world to display the glory of his name. But when false teachers creep in and ungodly influences come in, leading by their own fleshly intuition rather than according to God's revelation, the result will be an unholy church that is of no use to the world and of no glory to God. If the church is going to allow and follow and propagate false teaching, it would be better to close its doors than to continue to lead people astray towards the day of judgment. That's the danger of false teachers in the church. This is why Jude's saying you must contend. You must be watchful about these things. These are people who are doing great damage and causing dissension and subverting the word of God. There's a word of great encouragement. In fact, if I were a visitor here and heard me say, I can't wait to preach this passage, based on the first two points, you're probably thinking, okay, why would he not be, why, why couldn't he wait to preach this passage? Well, the third point is so loaded with hope and joy, and I hope you understand this. The third point is, God will get the final word, no matter what false teachers will say. I want you to look at verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Jude's quoting Enoch here. Now, if you were to read Genesis, Enoch was the seventh generation from Adam. And it's a little bit confusing because in Jude's day, there was a, a false gospel, a false book of the Bible floating around called First Enoch. It, it, was sometime, it was written sometime in what we call the intertestamental period. They were very common in that time where there were no prophets from about 400 uh, BC till the time of Christ. And so people would write books and what they would do was attach the name of credible people like Enoch to gain popularity. And that's what the book of First Enoch was. It, it, it was a false, it was what's called apocrypha. It, it doesn't belong in our Bibles. Jude didn't consider it part of his Bible. It was probably written just uh, using the name of Enoch just to gain popularity and credibility, but Jude seems to be referencing it here. Does that mean that it should be part of our Bibles? I don't think so. I, I think Jude is using this account, and it may, this part of it, that Jude, uh, it may have been in Jewish tradition for, for 2,000 plus years that uh, Enoch had given such a prophecy. The only thing Jude is doing is illustrating that God will judge and vindicate his name. All sorts of ungodliness may slip by the eyes of men, but God doesn't miss a thing, and he will call all to account. You heard that. That's the other key word in verse 14. All, all, all. 
then the hidden wickedness of all will be laid bare for all to see, and the judge of all the earth will judge accordingly. I don't know how that makes you feel, but to me, that's a terrifying thought. See, I'm assuming for us the direction of our life, it's not one of intentional hypocrisy or hidden sin, but you and I are still sinners, aren't we? We're guilty of inconsistent, imperfect lives. You can probably imagine over the last two weeks as I prepared this sermon, how many times in my own mind I thought, who am I to stand before these people and talk about godly pastors when I myself can be so inconsistent? When I myself wrestle with sin, who are you to preach such a message? Many days I feel exactly like the Apostle Paul when he said he was the chief of sinners. You know, Satan often brings our past to mind. It may be things from 20 or 30 years ago. And he brings them up and he accuses us of them. That's why Revelation calls him the accuser of the brethren. That's his, his vocation, is to accuse Christians of our sins. Have you ever experienced that before? We're not the first people satan's accused i want to go back to this interesting thing in verse 9 but when the archangel michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of moses he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment but said the lord rebuke you friends you're gonna have to pay attention keep your eye on the ball here okay because it's easy to get distracted with this We know from Scripture that when Moses died, God himself buried Moses. But there arose in Jewish tradition a story that before Moses' body was buried, there was a dispute between Michael, the highest ranking of the angels, and the devil, an angel who was cast out of heaven. And as the devil does he began hurling accusations about Moses, arguing Moses is not worthy of such a dignified burial. And particularly, he was pointing to Moses having killed an Egyptian man. You know, the devil does not have the spirit. The devil has never received grace, so he cannot understand the concept of grace. He didn't experience it himself, and he doesn't desire for others to experience it. And so what he's doing here is he's leveling accusation after accusation against Moses the same way he does to many of us. But God always gets the final word. This is the wondrous good news of this passage. Michael understands that, and Michael simply says to him, the Lord rebuke you. Now that response, the Lord rebuke you, is the same thing, is the same language we see in another scene in Scripture, and I want you to go there with me. Go with me to Zechariah chapter 3, if you would. If you're using the Bible in your row, it's on page 794. Keep your eye on the ball here, beloved. In the beginning of this passage, we meet a high priest named Joshua. It's not the Joshua that led the Israelites 
into the promised land. This is a different one. And as the high priest, he's the spiritual leader of God's people. It was his duty to bring the people of God into the presence of God. But just as the devil did with Moses and he does with us, he accuses Joshua of sin. Look at verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand accusing him. Now, interestingly, Joshua doesn't give a defense of himself. He doesn't have to. The Lord comes to his defense. Look at verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. It's the same language we see Michael using here in Jude. What are they saying? Satan, regardless of your accusations, regardless of what your minions may say, what you might bring to mind, what dirt you have compiled on people, the Lord gets the final word, and Satan's accusations cannot stand up against God's grace. This is good news, dear ones. And Zechariah gives us this amazing picture. Look at verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. You know, this is why Joshua didn't pipe up and say, listen, Satan, I didn't do that. He actually knows it's all true. He is a sinner. Same with Moses. The accusations were true. Same with us. The accusations are true. Look at verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with clean vestments. And then the angel obeyed. Now look at verse 5. Look at the end. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Do you know who the angel of the Lord is? It's the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. The one who later would take upon himself Joshua's filthy robes and Moses' filthy robes and my filthy robes and yours if you're a believer. And he would bear the curse of everything that Joshua did, that Moses did, that I've done, that you have done. And in exchange, he gives us his perfect righteousness. Joshua never opened his mouth to defend himself, did he? The angel of the Lord defends him. The angel cleanses him. Joshua makes no defense of his own. He trusts in no work of his own to make himself clean of sin. He rests instead entirely upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, on Jesus' obedience and blood. Listen to me, beloved. Christ's obedience and blood is a sufficient final word to all the enemy's assaults and accusations. God always gets the final word. 1521, Martin Luther was tried for heresy at what was called the Deet of Worms. He was given the opportunity to recant all that he had taught that went against the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. He asked for a day to pray about it because he understood what was at stake. If he didn't recant, his life was almost surely over. But after prayer, he refused to to recant and was taken away to what seemed to be certain death. 
But on the way back from the trial, a, a band of highwaymen, they were actually guards of a powerful friend of Luther's. They stopped the, the carriage or whatever Luther was riding in. They took Luther with them, and they took him away to Vortberg Castle, where Luther would remain for almost a year in solitude, translating the New Testament into German. One night at Vortberg, Luther had a dream that Satan appeared to him reciting this long list of his sins, everything Luther had done. And the devil heaped on Luther, failure after failure after failure, transgression upon transgression, accusing Luther. And Luther's terror grew so unbearable until at last he burst out, it is all true, Satan, and much more. There's, in other words, Satan, there's stuff you didn't, even make, you didn't even catch. But God knows it all. But right at the bottom of the list, the final word says this, the blood of Christ. God's Son cleanses us from all sin. That's the final word. We do not need to enter our own defense. We don't need to speak up on our own behalf when the evil one comes to accuse. We need only remember what Jesus did for Joshua, for Moses, for us taking our dirty robes and clothing us in his perfect righteousness. Christian, God gets the final word, which means that no matter what Satan may accuse you of, you are clean. You're clean, believer. Praise God for the gospel because it's it's the final word. No matter what Satan may accuse you of, no matter what the false teachers may say, God gets the final word. Satan will deceive, false teachers will follow in his footsteps, but you have the scriptures. And that is the final word. You cannot be deceived while you're holding fast and uh, contending for the faith. If you belong to Jesus Christ, no accusation against you can stick. No false teacher can ultimately lead you astray because God will get the final word. This is the faith for which we contend. So let me urge you, dear ones, Keep your eye on the ball. How do we apply this text? Let me give you three practical applications. First, be watchful about being led astray. When you are taught things about God, whether it is here at First Scots or on the TV or by your coworker or whoever else, do not believe it until you can see it in the Scriptures. Let me tell you how serious about this the Apostle Paul was. In Galatians 1.8, he says, If we or even an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what has been preached to you, let him be accursed. No matter how charismatic somebody is, no matter if they claim to have a word from the Lord, always look to the scriptures. And when people say to you, God told me, and then they tell you what God told them, either it contradicts the scriptures and therefore it's a lie, or it agrees with the scriptures and it's unnecessary. Search the scriptures that you may be watchful against being led astray. Second, I want you to notice how much Jude emphasizes 
the life and lifestyle of false teachers. Regardless of how orthodox a person's theology may sound, if their life is marred by sin and fruitlessness, do not follow them. This is true for pastors. This is true for elders. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 7. He says, you will know the false teachers by their fruit. It won't be the fruit of the Spirit. It won't be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control. It'll be self-conceit, self-aggrandizement. No matter how charismatic or eloquent or impressive someone may be, if their life is not adorned with the fruit of the Spirit, avoid such teachers. Now let me give you a gentle warning for you to reflect on yourself. If that's true of teachers, then it must be true of you as well. Are you bearing fruit? Are you growing in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? It's, uh, Paul's saying back there in Galatians 5 when he gives the fruit of the Spirit, he's saying those are evidences that the Spirit is at work within you, that the seed is there. It'll grow up into fruit being born. Are you bearing fruit consistent with being a Christian? The life matters. The way we live matters no matter what we profess to believe. Finally, as you contend for the faith, don't be afraid to stand against a watching world remembering that one day you will stand before a holy God. We are entering into a time, and maybe we're already there, in which those who hold to biblical Christianity are public enemy number one, and the culture's tools are not lynching, but canceling. It's shame and embarrassment that that the culture aims to heap upon lawbreakers today. There will be, for you and me, temptations to compromise the faith so that we can appease the world and save ourselves embarrassment. It will feel easier to compromise rather than to stand before a mocking, laughing, scorning world. But when we are tempted to do that, let us remember that one day we will stand before a holy God. And it is far better, beloved, it is far better to fall to the scorn of a laughing, mocking world than it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Do not fall into the temptation to compromise, to turn away from the faith in order to appease the world, because in the end, you will lose it all. Let's go to our God in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for the hope of the gospel, and as this passage reminds us, it is our only hope. No matter what other false teachers and false religions are out there, none of them can offer to us the white garments, the clean garments that Jesus offers to us in the gospel. Father, would you help us to cling to Jesus Christ and him only and to have the discernment to know when we are being taught things that differ from the word. Father, I pray that with fear and trembling, knowing that in this congregation, this dear flock has that duty 
if ever even one of our pastors, myself included, say something that flies in the face of Scripture, it must be called to account. Let us contend earnestly for the faith. 